Hello. How you doing? How are you? I'm well. How are you? Doing all right. I feel like I can see you much better than I did last time. Maybe you have better, different lighting or something. I don't know. Well, when was last time? It was like in February, March. I don't remember. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the the late winter. It's just, just, it's just darker in Portland. Yeah, it's just darker in September, maybe. All right. Well, yeah. how's your dog? Before we get going, he's doing better. He's, uh, I mean, he's, he turns fifteen this month. He's doing good. He's on antibiotics. He's doing a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Almost fifteen. He's fit. Yeah, he is fifteen and, now. Yeah. And you are thirty-nine. Yeah, yeah, we uh, almost, yeah, yeah, almost rounding up. Yeah. So you were twenty four, and he was a puppy, or you adopted him when he was. He was born in September of two thousand and seven, and I got him in January of two thousand and eight. Okay, that's a so long time ago. Was, yeah, and we've gone. I've lived in Nebraska twice, New York. I mean, we've traveled all over. Yeah. And his his name is Beckett. Yeah, if I I can show you a picture. Yeah, sure. Um, can I share my screen? Uh, just paint me the picture of of Beckett from a puppy to age four, fifteen in 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 one minute. Go. <laughs> uh, he's a black lab pit bull mix. I mean, he's uh, he's like eighty pounds. Um, and he has a lot of gray in his beard now, but he's still active and, uh, you know, he's, he can't hear that well, he can't see that well and he can only hear all right, but he, um, yeah, he's, he's, we went out, you know, like a half hour, me and my girlfriend went out with him for like a half hour this morning, went out for, he's, he's we sometimes go on two walks for like 45 minutes a day. The sniffing, I'm, put, I'm pointing to my nose because you say you can't hear or see, but they, they sniff, and that is their yeah. that is their sight in a lot of ways. So as long as he's still active with his nose, he's happy probably. Very much, yeah, for sure, yeah. We had to put our dog, Boomy, down um, in, I think it was in April now, and um, he was almost 13, and uh, woo. You've known him since 2009, right? Yeah, yeah. We got him October. It was the World Series in 2009. And we were driving back in our shitty Honda Civic. And he was in the back, uh, a little puppy with um, my brother-in-law. And uh, we were driving back from the outside of Sacramento where we got him. And uh, he was a little tiny K-Sound. Yeah, nine weeks old. It's it's just... uh, it's so hard to lose anyone, but a dog is different because you've known him, you know, mm-hmm. his whole life. He's known you. He's been around the country with you, unwillingly maybe, but he was with you. He, he didn't maybe ask to go to New York or Nebraska, but he was with you. Once you got there, he was like, I got no surroundings. I'm going to make it work. This guy's yeah, pretty, like pretty nice to me. Are you feeling your your heart's going to break a little bit? Are you, how are you doing with the idea of him being gone? Uh, I don't know. It's hard for me to say because he's doing better now. Um, but he yeah, will, I don't. But I, he will die. He will sadly. Die. 
He's uh, doing better now, but he's not getting out alive. It's sad. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I guess I haven't placed a lot of thought on that right now, like how I'm going to grieve preemptively. I just wondered if that was in, in your mind at all because he's almost 15 or is. Yeah. Um, or were you just thinking he'd keep going for a lot longer maybe? I mean, he could. I don't know. I guess I'm just taking it kind of one day at a time. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't like, uh, I think I'll be, yeah, heartbroken. I think he's also, for his size and his age, he's done, I don't, yeah, he's in a good, I mean, he's in a relatively good place now. Yeah. Well, I preemptively grieve for you. Well, he's not on death's doorstep. I want to make that clear. Yeah. It could be next. It could be next week. It could be a year from now. It could be two years from now, but he's not going to be an eternal dog. He will, he will not be the first eternal dog. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put some guarantee on that. Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You'd have, you'd have more books to write if he became the first Um. eternal dog. (laughs) Well, yeah, Eileen Miles, they wrote a, book called afterglow when their dog i think i didn't actually read the book but i skimmed it i think their dog was 16 it was a pit bull too they had it since i mean yeah it's in the voice of the dog um yeah there's yeah i I remember reading a dave eggers story from the point of view of a dog like maybe maybe 15 years ago and i remember thinking that would be fun to write and then i might have written like a scene from the point of view of a dog yeah it's all just um as in your book and yet which we're going to go into in detail here soon it's very hard to remove a sense of i or self or human self from your voice as a writer becoming Mm -hmm. a dog is like a way to be something other than the i but it's still our projection. We don't read with our noses. We don't see with our noses. We don't sniff each other's butts. Well, some some people do. Most people don't. Um, right. We have we have our our idea of the dog, but we're always projecting onto the dog. We're never in the dog. Mm-hmm. So it's right. like so so it's fun to imagine what is this dog witnessing, observing, thinking, feeling. Yeah, I mean, there's, do you know the, uh, his name's Thomas Nagel. He's like a science writer. Like, do, he wrote an article about bats, um, which was got kind of famous. Like, how whenever humans think about bats, or I mean, you know, you're always placing your humanity first, but you can do that with any kind of animal. Yeah. With, with um, The Overstory by Richard Powers, it's a similar framework of we place trees at the side of our reality or in the background or you know we clear trees to create our land we don't think of trees as living breathing coexisting communicating to each other but they do and now there's proof of that scientifically Mm -hmm. i was thinking about that because there's on on my walk around the block which i've done thousands of times in the last five years with the the baby and now five-year-old um there's this redwood tree that a neighbor planted 40 years ago when they moved in and now it's it's threatening their foundation and it's like way up beyond the power lines and they had to 
killed a tree, basically. Oh, um, God. And it was like they planted this sapling, you know, 40 years ago. So, and then I'm thinking about all the attention paid to the queen. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. the last month, the world can't stop focusing on the death, the natural death of a 96-year-old person. For um, sure. And the redwood tree is not in the headlines. It's only in yeah. my local news uh, feed in my head. Is yeah? Is it even? Is it in the local news feed or not even? It was in. A, it was a letter that the neighbor put in our mailboxes, um, basically saying, you know, this is what's happening. Um, we're sorry to have to cut this tree down. It's going to come down in three stages. PG and E is going to deal with the first top third of the st- tree, and then we have some. And then, but eventually there'll be bears uh, carved into with a, a chainsaw artist is going to carve two bear cubs into the bottom into the bottom so it will look cool eventually the redwood tree will become two bear cubs um but yeah but the queen i mean it makes me sad and frustrated our the way our attention goes so blanket toward this one human being on the planet who died of natural causes at age 96 (laughs) does it do you have any feelings when you see that you're inundated with like the headlines and the England stops. Um, about the stop. Queen specifically? Well, just about our, our attention on her death. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I don't, I'm not, I guess, deeply interested in the British monarchy. So I, I don't, uh, I guess it just depends on where you place your attention. I know there are I, a lot I of don't, I'm going to, I'm going to cut right through that. 99% of people watching cable news and reading these things are just being nostalgic for the idea of this this person who existed on earth and was famous. They don't care about the monarchy. They're just like, this is a famous person and she was with me my whole life because I'm 70 and this is just such a tragic thing and look the bagpipes. Uh, I don't think they care about the monarchy at all. Um... <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't. Do you want? I don't. I don't know. I guess you feel more strongly than I do. I guess. I don't know. I don't. I guess it I doesn't, doesn't bother you. Um, our attention. Goes I don't think it so, bothers so me as much as it bothers you. <laughs> That's true. That's what is rough. your specific? Yeah, why it's, or, it's, why it's, is it? I feel like attention's a finite resource. I get frustrated when the attention that humanity could be paying to. I'm not saying you have to be a social activist all of your waking hours. I'm not saying that you have to be an environmentalist all of your waking but I'm saying that treating this death as if it deserves X amount of hours of the average person in the UK and average person in in America over a certain age, it seems like, uh, paying attention to the process, the ritual, the idea of the nostalgia. I mean, we, we see it in culture, the crown, you know, Downton Abbey, all this fascination with this idea of Britain, this idea of a, a, a polite, aristocratic, genteel, enlightened society. And so there's this cultural bias toward that. But then there's just the People magazine style. This is the famous person you've seen for 70 years, and now she's dead. So it's like, it's the celebrity part that bothers me, and it's the attention that we dedicate 
toward the nostalgia, the faux nostalgia, the, the sort of symbolic uh, idea that, that her death is more meaningful than how many people have died of COVID in the last three years around the planet, you know? Sure. So valuing, yeah, I mean, valuing one death over so many other deaths is part of my issue as well. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there's the death and there's the symbolism of the death. And I think people care about the symbolism and romanticism much more. Yeah. Right. But I, I mean, if, if attention is finite, I mean, do you read the articles or what I got? Cause I guess for me, it just seemed like it was distant a little bit. I don't pay that, that attention, but it feels to me like that's what's being paid attention to. So I feel like, sure. I feel like I'm in the minority of people who are frustrated by how much attention is paid toward that. Maybe that's because people aren't, you know, caught up in it and they're just like, whatever, that's in the news. Yeah. But what's but what's, I mean, but what's in the news is so important because there's so much information and there's so little clarity. There's just like the barrage. And then this cuts through the barrage. This matters. Why do you think this matters though? Because why, there's so many think- because there's so many people on the planet. Like I have a student who grew up in Hong Kong and he saw the Queen's face you know, in his classrooms when he was six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, in Hong Kong, oh. that kind of thing. Just there's so many people who have known this face. The person has died. It's also the sure. end. It's also British Empire, all over the world, thought about the king and the queen in some point in their life. Yeah, people were nostalgic when Socrates alive. It, it's always kind of you know champion what once was, even if it never actually was. Right. That, well, that's a lot of what's happening in politics in the last 10 years in the United States. Mm-hmm. Sure. move into your book let's move away from the queen and the redwood trees and move toward this character who is unnamed tell me about the process of writing this book first it's called and yet and it's a a work of experimental fiction yeah i mean i wrote it in 2018 which feels like a while ago now it started in may and, and basically was done october what I wanted to kind of write was a commonplace book, a book with a lot of different quotations, anecdotes, citations from different kind of cultural figures, um, artists that matter to me that also had a narrative. Um, and the book, it loosely takes my own kind of autobiographical, I guess, trajectory, but it's about shyness and selfhood and sex. Um, and it, kind of dovetailed with uh, an article that came out in the Atlantic in December of 2018 about how at the time it was millennials. That's why the book feels a little bit dated now in 2022, but like millennials were having less sex and intimacy than any other generation. Um, Now post COVID and with kind of generation Z getting older, it's kind of every generation um, is 
having less sex, having less meaningful relationships. Um, so the book was written a while ago. It took me two years to find a publisher. And um, then it came out in June of this year. Um, and, you know, I revised it a little bit, but it's, you know, it does feel already kind of like dated in certain ways. This millennial versus Gen Z. So I'm, I'm 1980, you're 1983. Three. The cutoff for the millennial is basically like 1980 or something. Yeah, I think but 1980. I, but I've I've talked with people about this idea of generations. I mean, so much of it seems to be based around technology in the last. Hmm. If if you grew up without the internet up till age 18, you kind of are a different generation. Sure. Right. Um, the internet, even in its infancy, the the cultural impact of the internet on the way that teens communicated, maybe it's unimportant, but where's the cutoff between, you know, Gen X? Yeah, it seems arbitrary in certain regards and in other ones, maybe not so much. Yeah, so do you feel like you are a millennial? Do do you feel like that term? Yeah, I mean, this is a book about, I think we became internet people at some point in the u.s and i think it was probably sure. close to 2018 that that happened maybe it's 2019 but whatever whatever the point at which living in real life versus living online uh right. sort of blurred to the point where the average 23 year old who was dating was uncomfortable meeting someone without knowing anything about them uh was was less comfortable being in an improvisational environment and more comfortable being in a controlled and curated environment like social media. Um, So there's this kind of, it was in the air. It was in in 2017, 18, 19, this, this kind of gradual shift from I'm out of age to date, whatever that is, 20, 25, and I'm going to meet people like they used to do versus I'm of age and dating. And I'm going to go on, these three apps and put up a profile and then swipe, 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 maybe have a, you know, text conversation, maybe meet for coffee, that shift in behavior. It seems to be central to what happened around that time with people and dating and intimacy. Is that fair? Um, The behavioral shift. Yeah. I mean, I think it might've happened before even 2018. Sure like Tinder and what have you. I mean, the protagonist of the book is less kind of concerned with technological kind of things and more concerned with notions of selfhood. But I guess in terms of society, um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's become, for people my age a decade ago, if you were doing a dating profile, I don't think it would have always been stated, but it might've been like, you're kind of too much of a loser to find someone out in the real world. Now, if you're 19 or if you're 21, or if you're younger than that, or slightly older, I think it's par for the course, but I think people, you know, those types of things are just games. I don't know. You know, I guess it just depends on what you, where you want to put your energies. Those are games, but we behave differently in different games. 
And so the protagonist of your book, let's go into this sex, gender, intimacy, selfhood. First, I want to say it is an amazing collection of passages and quotes and references. This, this, you know, it's 150 pages. Uh, it's just full of reference points. Mm -hmm. Almost overwhelming, almost burying the the protagonist underneath the weight of all of the words of of the past and other other conceptions of self and love and intimacy. Almost burying the protagonist to me, but not fully burying. There's just enough of the present tense actions to keep it going. Um, sure, it's a very different. It's experimental, as you said, and it's it's very different than a narrative a straight narrative because it's so hopping back and forth um, between these concepts, ideas, passages. Um, one of them I actually used with my class last night. It was a lovely Spalding Gray quote about when you can't talk, reality comes rushing at you very quickly or very fast. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking to my students about trying to get them to speak, feel confident in speaking English. Um, it's okay to make mistakes empowering them but it's true of all of us mm -hmm. when you're speaking you're activated when sure. and when you can't or when you're when you're limited when you're behind that silence there's a powerlessness sure can you relate how that quote informs your protagonist of this book he talks a lot in therapy but it, but we don't get a lot of him talking in in real life. We get a lot of him analyzing, digesting, reflecting, right? Right. But, but actually speaking in real life, in in, in the present tense, and, and the action, it's not very much. It's mostly in therapy that we hear him. Right. You mentioned forty-seven beds. He says this in forty-seven oh, okay. beds. When you can't talk, reality comes rushing in on you very strongly. Protagonist doesn't actually talk except in therapy. And the significance of that? Yeah, that's one aspect. We hear him reflecting and we hear him and we and we see the references, but in terms of the action of this narrator, this protagonist, I think this quote informs a lot of what happens to him, how he relates to himself, how he deals with life, how he dates. There's all these scenes where he's at the bar. Uh, and he's considering reality, the reality around him versus the book that he's holding, uh, which, sure. is, which is his way of avoiding reality. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it directly references the Spalding Gray quote, but one of the, you know, one of the things in the book is living your life in relation to what's on a screen or what's in an actual book versus living your life um in the present moment and you know he his existence is predicated on what others have said or done or written or made etc um and that's crippling in certain instances um in terms of social development this is spalding gray on charlie rose july 1st 1992 just after uh his debut novel impossible vacation in case anybody doesn't know what you do, I can move away, yeah, you can do your show. Doing it, I'm doing it now. The best description I ever heard was from a 10-year-old girl at the first during my monologue, Sex and Death at the Age 14. I thought she was a bit young. I said, what are you doing here? 
She said, my father said I had to come and hear the talking man. <laughs> you are the talking the man. Talking man. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you learn to do it? Because you have this really incredible gift as a storyteller, frequently described as such. Right. But it didn't come from that sort of... It came from those kind of roots. no stories being told in New England. Nothing being spoken, right. everything being shuffled under the rug, and all of a sudden one day at 36 years old I began to talk and never stopped. Yeah. There's not a lot of dialogue in this book because I don't think I was, I'm not really interested in writing kind of dialogue. That's not really where I think my strong suit is or my focus is, but um, there is a lot of thinking in one's head, but thinking is different than action and there's a divide there. Um, and so the book does draw that divide out Um you know, I don't know if towards a, towards a certain end, whether satisfactory or not. Drawing that divide out between being in your head and acting, having a few attempts at therapy and both situations kind of Ted Steve, I believe is the composite of the two. It's just sort of this bland, basically they just, he just speaks the narrator and this composite therapist offers kind of generalities and there's there's a lack of confrontation in these sessions and there's a lack of I don't know there doesn't seem to be a way to actually jolt the narrator into into um, being awoken with Ted Steve or with with Ted Steve I'm I'm describing why Larissa works for this narrator and why Ted Steve doesn't Larissa she's confrontational and unconventional and I loved when Basically, there was a list of ways in which Larissa describes Western culture and part of the problem that this narrator and many people, perhaps both of us included, experience, which which is that people are self-centered in West in the Western culture, basically pathologically self-centered. And self-pity is this main sign of selfishness. Um, it's also not a very good way to attract friends or lovers, um, which is an interesting insight. I think it's true, but I think a lack of self-pity also is not a good way to attract anyone as a friend. If you are never able to be aware of the ways in which life is hard for you and articulate that, you come off as a prick. <laughs> you come mm-hmm. off as an arrogant, detached you know, sort of like only see the rainbows and the possibilities take charge kind of gung-ho asshole. Um, So so self-pity is this not zero or a hundred, right? It's in between. How much do you indulge in that self-pity is a good question. And one in which the character, the narrator has to deal with. Is he pitying pitying himself or is he detaching from the idea of self? Huh. Pitying versus detachment. Yeah. I mean, have you gone to much therapy? I have. Yes. Decades. So I, like, I I recently just started seeing a therapist again. Like, I haven't really. And so I had kind of like, honestly, a friend of a friend told me about the character of Royce is kind of like a composite of two different people. But one of those people is a therapist and was 
this was not told it was like friend of a friend like i said um but she, well she was kind of a dick like to her patients mm-hmm. um which i guess is interesting to me as someone who's i've seen different therapists but i've never really seen them for super long and i've i've always been a little bit hesitant because i i don't naturally cotton to talking about myself um and so i can feel bashful um sometimes in a therapeutic setting like cuz you you are that's what you're doing you know and like you said i mean i think my struggle sometimes with therapy is i mean this is me talking as like a human being i'm a very lucky person you know i have running water i have uh, uh, shelter. I have all of these things that I oftentimes take for granted. And it can seem, and this is a problem with me, not with therapy or a therapist. It can seem silly to be like, oh, I, you know, I got cut off and I got angry or like, I don't, you know, like my girlfriend's being mean to me or my partner was real. Like it just seems petty because uh, there are billions. I mean, I'm writing an essay about my grandfather's World War II diary, and I was looking up the global conflict tracker, and there are currently 27 global conflicts in the world with 1.5 billion people kind of in, you know, either moderate or severe danger, but in danger. Um, But the queen died! (laughs) Right, yeah, but the queen died. Um, So I guess I was interested, though, in, you know, how... I don't know if I want to use the word pathetic, but like just the duality between someone who's so enwrapped in their own thoughts and is scared of sex and is scared of themselves and is kind of, you know, not really able to move forward as an adult versus someone who has a therapist. I just think of therapy as people who are nurturing and gentle and kind of there for you. And I think a lot of therapists are, but I guess it was just this was 2017 talking to that that friend like I mean the this therapist was kind of like a dick and just what what that kind of would do for I don't know a situation in a book Mm. I think like parenthood the experience of therapy is very individual and unique and from Mm. the outside it's sort of two different universes um that's not to alienate people that's just to highlight the division between living Mm -hmm. a life with a young child in your home and all of the constant needs and demands on you and your your sense of self which is a big part of this book changes right your your young self teen self college self suddenly it's not you at the center if you're sure. a good if you're a good parent and i don't mean that in a judgmental way but if you're a fully accepting of this responsibility parent you are no longer at the center for a little while whether you view that as the first 5 years or the first 18 years you are no longer at the center taking up 99% or 80% or 70% if you're in an, in a committed relationship uh maybe you don't view it the same way either right? You don't view yourself as the whole center in a, if you're in a committed relationship. Sure. But that center grows rather than contracts or stays the same. Mm-hmm. Um, which sounds abstract and subjective. 
But I think it's a universal truth that the world opens up when you're forced to take yourself out of the middle. Right. And you, you kind of allude to that in talking about selfhood in this in this book, that the world is very closed. He He talks about the box. The narrator talks about the box that he wants to stay within or that one of the books he's reading, the box of containment that that is yeah. li- living through text. the box man yeah 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 and mm-hmm. therapy is a box also it's a separate universe it's it's a separate space and yes people are sort of asked or encouraged to confront themselves in a way that they usually don't the rest of their week or the rest of their mm. day yeah yeah and some people love doing that and love being challenged and a lot of people there's there's this gray area like challenge me but not too much um right. listen but i want your advice there's right. th- there's that there's this give and take it can be very difficult when you're trying to divulge and explore and excavate yourself and then the therapist is confrontational you might feel like right. you can't you can't finish or you might feel like, no, there's more. Yeah, and I think it depends. Some people, I mean, he initially hates this confrontational therapist. It ends up being the right one for him because she does prod him in ways that are, in the end, they are nurturing. They are kind of reassuring mm-hmm. in a paradoxical way. Have you seen, and I, I guess it's one of those things, have you seen a bunch of different therapists? Or yes. have you, so, and have each one has helped you in different ways? Or did some, I mean, I would say it's, it's hard like, to find. I would say it's like dating. I, when I've recommended right. to a friend of mine um, that he begin, uh, I, I've said, you've got to give it two or three times, right. and then you uh-huh. need to decide whether or not it feels right. It's not automatic. It's, sure. it's a, it's it a relationship. Time. It takes time. Yeah, and it for takes sure. time. That's the for thing. Sure. That's been my own hesitation in the past because I've I've seen a couple people, and then sometimes it's like this isn't really. I don't know. It's not really working, but it's not hurting. Let it's me ask painful. you. Let me ask you when you um when you decided to try it. Sometimes people view therapy like another medical condition. I have this problem. I need it fixed. Um, sure a broken leg or something. Um, it, it can seem paralyzing to people to think you're never going to fix this. You're only right. going, you're only going to adjust yourself to yourself. You're only going to accept life in a different way so that you can be happier basically. Um, sure. Cause acceptance, it runs through this book as well. The idea of acceptance as, as a kind of antidote for the self paralysis and anxiety hmm yeah it's acceptance of oneself versus disregarding of societal norms and where that meets in the middle or doesn't I mean I think that is one of the things yeah that, that's a through line as well that people are all very very different and they interact with the world in different ways and then there is sometimes a well you're supposed to do this this way you're supposed to be this way you're supposed to act this way and uh 
you know, you're talking about the, the, you know, the queen that, you know, we're all supposed to care about the queen because it's all getting media attention and we're suffused with that, but billions of people don't care about the queen, you know? Um, but it seems like a societal kind of edict that we all did care. And I think it's getting views. So it probably is on some level, but I think there is that tension between who we should be um, versus who we are. And that is something that the book struggles with. And I think that's what every person kind of struggles with, especially as they get older, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as, as you, as you turn from sort of twenties post-college, if you went to college, enjoying the freedom of not being a child to then that freedom kind of coalescing into boundaries, limitations, responsibilities, societal, right. societal expectations around relationships, etc. Um, can I ask you, how does vulnerability play into acceptance, acceptance of sort of the ride is over, the ride of the 20s, the, the sort of seat of your pants kind of embrace the day? How does vulnerability play into acceptance? for you or for this Me, character well you can ref- you can you can focus on the character if you like i'm more interested in you um how does vulnerability tie in with my own acceptance as a, a person kind of or my own acceptance of what acceptance of adulthood of 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 the sort of societal expectation of post party yeah. 20s life does it play um, in sort of because sometimes i i think acceptance depends upon your ability to be flexible right and like sure. if you have a certain idea of your ambition of yourself where you need to get then acceptance becomes a challenge right i think for me i think in the last maybe like seven or eight years i've become far more open to being a vulnerable person uh i do think until my early 30s i you know, part of vulnerability, and it's the reason why people oftentimes aren't very vulnerable is because they've been hurt in the past. And then they put up walls. So then they don't have to be hurt again. And then um, you're fine, because you're not fully, fully yourself in certain ways, but you're also you're you're shielded, you, you have a certain armor. Um, I think up until my early 30s, I was um I guess I was not super interested in being hurt again because I'd been hurt in the past, um, whether in deep ways or even fickle ways that kind of lingered. Um, I think I'm still scared of vulnerability, but I mean, there's also a freedom in kind of, uh, I don't want to say in, in, there's not a freedom necessarily in being hurt, but there's a freedom in being open to, um, the circumstance where it might work or it might not work, but either way, you're going to feel things on their own terms. I mean, I used to be a pretty heavy drinker, so I used to just drink and, you know, and then you don't have to necessarily feel kind of your, your, your failures or potentially your successes. Cause either way you're kind of, you're imbibing something that's changing who you are, but it is something I think that, I personally, I think everyone struggles with, you know, words or concepts like vulnerability, because 
to a certain degree, I think we're taught to not kind of openly accept those, um, or at least as men. Right. That's what I was going to say, especially, I mean, you know, I'm from Northern Nevada. I mean, I came from a stable family, but we didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't, it's just, you know, and I'm not any different than a lot of other kind of middle-class straight white men, you know, like I'm in. Do you recall either of your parents showing vulnerability at any point? Do you, do you have a specific memory of when you saw that and maybe that impacted you? Showing vulnerability? Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I mean, uh, I remember when I was like very young, I was playing, I don't know if this is an instance of vulnerability as much as, as much of anger, but it was a kind of honest emotion when somebody else's mom, we were, I mean, I never, this is probably like, I was maybe seven, six, we were playing t-ball and I like slapped somebody else's hat and that, that kid's mom like grabbed me and my mom like grabbed her and it was a little kind of seesaw effect. Um, But I guess it was the first time when I realized maybe to a certain degree, how much I mattered to my mom and maybe my parents broadly. Um, So that was maybe anger, but anger can be a form of vulnerability too. It's, it's a starting point, maybe not an ending point. It's a mask for vulnerability is what a lot of psychologists would say. Anger is the expression of fear it's the, sure. expre- it's the it's the initial expression of fear think of uh when you're cut off and you feel like you almost had a car accident you don't feel terrified very long initially you feel furious right right because right. your life was just suddenly threatened and that's our instinct our instinct is anger which is why it's hard with parenting to teach your child to dial back the uh, initial emotion of anger and to go deeper into naming what you're feeling. Um, and if you're not taught it, so socio-emotional learning is, is, is huge now. My mom was a second grade teacher and she always valued that in terms of helping my brother and I, but on a personal level, her anger was, was severe and her, mm-hmm. and her lack of acceptance of the divorce was real and the simmering tension unspoken never spoken between my two parents was real um so yeah the the vulnerability is always a challenge i think um interesting anger is the first moment that pops your mind you you felt protected well i mean my parents have been married for 50 years this year they just had their 50th wedding anniversary and when i you know they've always been very loving and supportive when i was you know, I guess it's just a quote. When I was younger, I was very non-emotionally available. Um, and I think perhaps if I'd been, and I would maybe say my sister was more emotionally available. I, I think that they, I think when you're not emotionally available, when you're going through puberty and stuff, I mean, parents, I guess you know this firsthand, are humans too. They're not going to be like, hey, let's sit down and talk about our feelings because I would have jumped through the window rather than done that. I mean, in hindsight, I wish I would have been more open to things, but I wasn't. And, uh, you know, like, I don't know. I mean. Yeah. And, and I'm not, you know, speaking from any kind of place of judgment. I, I think, no, I shut down myself as a, as a teenager for, for a couple of years. Like I shut down a lot of my feelings because they were so negative. 
and because sure. I felt so bitter and frustrated with my situation and with the tension in my in my house. And I think teenage being a teenager is really hard. Period. Sure. And I think yeah. it's, and it's harder now than it was when we maybe, were younger. Maybe maybe it's harder now than it was. It's I don't know. If you're a sensitive person in general, seeing and observing other teenagers is threatening. Sure. Just seeing and observing, because back to Spalding Gray, when you can't talk, reality comes rushing in on you very strongly. And when you're sitting in a, in a biology classroom in, in 10th grade, and you're listening and taking notes and observing everyone else, there's a sense of paralysis. There's a sense of self-consciousness. There's a sense of where do I fit? You know, high school is a, is a pressure cooker and identity is being formed and reformed and reshaped all the time. And self-consciousness, a great thing for a writer, <laughs> not a great thing for a teenager, you know? Right, right. And, and, and being a male in a society that crushes the vulnerability of teenage boys the demand or demands of them that armor uh, mm -hmm. to avoid feelings and to think of intimacy as a conquest or as a challenge right. sure. all of these things are part of i think what so many people struggle with mm -hmm. and i appreciate how they're articulated in this book um i think it's very hard to write about it um I try yeah. to write I try to write about it myself sometimes this sense of vulnerability as strength uh right. sp speaking as unleashing yourself speaking mm -hmm. honestly speaking genuinely right. speaking from the heart and not conditioning the way you behave and speak to how society expects or wants sure now I admit I don't know her work really that well but are you like a fan or do you watch Brene Brown stuff might have seen the TED talk a few years ago but yeah I understand okay. her her sense of vulnerability of strength a couple of years ago an event planner called me because I was going to do a speaking event and she called and she said I'm really struggling with how to write about you on the little flyer and I thought well what's the struggle and she said well, I saw you speak, and I, 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 I'm going to call you a researcher, I think, but I'm afraid if I call you a researcher, no one will come because they'll think you're boring and irrelevant. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And she said, so, but the thing I liked about your talk is, you know, you're a storyteller, so I think what I'll do is just call you a storyteller. And, of course, the academic, insecure part of me was like, you're going to call me a what? Oh, why not magic pixie? Uh, I was like... I, I don't, I, I, let me think about this for a second. And so I tried to call deep on my courage and I thought, you know, I am a storyteller. I'm a qualitative researcher. I collect stories. That's what I do. And maybe stories are just data with a soul, you know, and maybe I'm just a storyteller. So I said, you know what? Why don't you just say I'm a researcher storyteller? And she went, <laughs> there's no such thing. <laughs> so I'm a researcher storyteller. Um, and this is where my story starts. When I was a young researcher, doctoral student, my first year I had a research professor who said to us, here's the thing, if you cannot measure it, it does not exist. And I thought he was just sweet talking me. I was like, 
really? And he's like, absolutely. So you have to understand that I have a bachelor's in social work, a master's in social work, and I was getting my PhD in social work. So my entire academic career was surrounded by people who kind of believed in the life's messy, love it, you know, and I'm more the life's messy, clean it up, <laughs> organize it, and put it into a bento box. Um, and so to think that I had found my way, to found a career that takes me, you know, really one of the big sayings in, in social work is lean into the discomfort of the work. And I'm like, you know, knock discomfort upside the head and move it over and get all A's. That's my, that was my mantra. So I was very excited about this. And so I thought, you know what? This is the career for me because I am interested in some messy topics, but I want to be able to make them not messy. I want to understand them. I want to hack into these things that I know are important and lay the code out for everyone to see. So where I started was with connection because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is, this is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice and mental health and abuse and neglect, what we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired, it's why we're here. your book. Philip Lopate uh, wrote a book of essays called To Show and to Tell, which came up in your in your book. And um, I read this book like a decade ago or so. And it was it was interesting. I, I didn't love all of it, but it was interesting to think about point of view and voice and storytelling. Um, I don't know if he was the one, but someone, there was a, an essay about writing that was basically like, never write with an axe to grind. Hmm. And I remember thinking, that's why people become writers at first. Right, definitely. <laughs> and yeah. it, takes, it takes time and, uh, and acceptance in some ways to go beyond that. Sure. Right? And, and then you have internet culture, Twitter, et cetera, where axe to grind, that's a lot of writing right now. Right. Well, yeah. Definitely. So it so it's against the grain to, to, to go in that direction. And it's also against the grain what, what he says in against Joie de Vivre, which you quote his essay against Joie de Vivre. I think I'm pronouncing Joie de Vivre correctly. To no rapture. <laughs> it's French. I can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> the joy of life, I think, uh, yeah. is what it means. Can... To no rapture is to have one's whole life poisoned. I think he's talking about having an orgasm or I think he's talking about being overwhelmed with a sense of joy uh, in either event. Don't the French call it orgasm little death, the little death? I think so, yeah. The rapture, similar. Um, he says, I don't really know what I'm waiting for. I know only that until I've gained what I want from this life, my expressions of gratitude and joy will be restricted to variations of a hunter's alertness. Expressing gratitude and joy 
I'm going to limit that to the way a hunter checks the air, basically. I give thanks to a nip in the air that clarifies the scent, but I think it's hypocritical to pretend satisfaction while I'm still hungry. The way I kind of read that is, you know, joy isn't sustainable. I mean, you can have a joyful moment, but unless you're maybe the Buddha, I mean, after gaining kind of <laughs> serenity, uh, you can't sustain that, especially for like a writer or an artist or even just a human being. Uh, you know, I think he's looking at that specifically from uh, ambitious writer. And, you know, when you're contented, well, you're not hungry by definition. Um, so I think that essay is just all about, it seems curmudgeonly, and it is, but the more joyful one is, oftentimes the more simplistic and maybe the more boring. Yeah, that's that can be dangerous for an artist. Satisfaction is definitely um, a threat. Sure. Um, I think of an interview with Colson Whitehead talking about reactions and feelings about himself as an author and basically noticing all the writers around him at this university and himself included, you're only, you only feel as good as the reception of your last book. It's, it's what's next. What's See, next? But that's so different from me because I, I'm a kind of, I'm mostly a poet. And, you know, one of the things you take for granted is poet people don't read poetry, even the biggest poet, you know, they might sell, Maybe, maybe for the poet laureate, it's different, but I mean, for it's amazing if it sells 5,000 copies, like amazing. Most poetry books, I mean, sure, there's going to be anomalies like Maya Angelou or something, but they don't. So like, it's a very, very small thing. You go on any plane, most people aren't going to know poets. So for me, it's less about, honestly, like the reception of my last book. And I, you know, Colson Whitehead is literally, I think he's won the Pulitzer twice, right? right, right. I mean, you're, you're talking... My, my, poets like, yeah my, my point is not that you 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 understand and experience my point is that you're never satisfied right because, but I because just, yeah that point of view of of being a writer and having the urge to right. write is the endless need in a way sure yeah i guess it, for me i was just like it's more about community you know and versus sales i think it, i think there are different writers who want different things but yeah you're you're right i mean but the reception can be your own reception to your own work, you know? And mm -hmm. I mean, I think for someone like Colson Whitehead, who's written many books, I don't know if his last book, if it does really, really well, but he knows in his heart that it's not that good and that reception doesn't matter. He because... went, he went toward genre and he, and he wrote like a pulp noir because he wanted yeah. to get away from the need to impress, I think. Yeah, I don't know his work that well. I've only read The Intuitionist, yeah. his first book. But like the reception that you have to your own self is the most important one. No doubt. Um, and I think, you know, it's easy to forget that, too. Because no if you no sell doubt. a book that is great, I mean, well, if, if you if you write a book that sells well, I mean, you might be able to lie to yourself and be like, that was a great book. But you might on another level know it wasn't as good as the book I wrote, you know, my first book. I don't know. Like, I'm So, so to... here's, yeah, so here's um, a possibility. What if you stop judging the success or failure? What if you stop judging the book after you've written it? What if you can just let it go? That's pure acceptance. 
Yeah, but we don't live in a culture that really values that. I mean, but we this live book in a is about not accepting societal norms. Are you talking about my book or just generally? And yet, or just... And yet, it's about questioning societal norms in many ways. Well, yeah, just to circle back to, I mean, I think it's a good book. I do, like I said, I think it's dated, but I think every book's dated. I mean, I'm proud of it in many ways. I mean, it was, for me as a writer, I've written poetry, I've written essays. I mean, I've done different things. And uh, it was the book I tried to write when I wrote it and that's all you can really ask for I mean um but one of the things you know with the book itself but I do feel like I'm a different person now as compared to when I wrote it because it seems like it was so long ago even though it really wasn't four years yeah pre-pandemic four years but with the pandemic pre-pandemic no no it's been a strange four years for sure well right I mean this so this was yeah I mean yeah I, I I mean, let's talk broadly, not just about the book, but I wanted to mention one more part of the book, and then let's move off of the book into just general. Jackson Pollock, quote, he's asked, do you right. work from nature? And um, he says, I am nature, mm-hmm. which is a provocative statement, pithy, right? And then the interviewer you you explain, or the, the narrator explains, the interviewer, Hans Hoffman, an, an abstract expressionist painting pioneer, he says, you don't work from nature you work by heart and that's no good you'll repeat yourself working by heart right this this stuck with me no matter what boundary you're pushing or or what genre you're exploding or or what attention you're getting regardless of all of that you have to have an internal voice and passion to continue Sure. And nature is fleeting and joy is fleeting and creativity mm-hmm. is fleeting. And in a way, this this response, you you work by heart. You don't work from nature by not going deeper into yourself. You can't move on is kind of how I read that. Sure. Right. That quote gets brought up a lot with Jackson Pollock. I mean, you know, I am nature because like you said, it is pithy. It is quippy. Um, But Hans Hoffman's response doesn't get quoted as much, but I think it is worth kind of thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for Hoffman, obviously, but I mean, he he was a well-known artist. I mean, he's not like just some just he he was was and is well known and he did if he hadn't been around Pollock wouldn't have been the artist that he was I think it was coming from a uh, uh, suspicion of certainty okay suspicion of certainty that Pollock was too self-assured he was too content well, as we we're talking about earlier too satisfied maybe I mean, I, yeah, I hesitate. I, I, this is just one, I'm not sure to be perfectly honest. Yeah, this is no, we're just one. speculating. I am nature versus you don't work from nature. You work by heart. That's no good. You will repeat yourself. Um, in the, in the context of this passage, nature is posited as something positive. Um, whereas Hans Hoffman is thinking of it more as, Nature is something that by definition repeats itself. So kind of it can continue to grow, you know, there's, I don't know, there's experimental leaves maybe, but you know, like nature, 
is what it is through regulation, through roots, through all of these different types of things. And Hans Hoffman might be pushing back a little bit against that, that the more natural you are, the less kind of experimental or the less kind of striving you might have, the more you settle into that naturality. Seems to reflect back on the idea of acceptance versus ambition, how ambition is a fight against acceptance in some ways, but acceptance is a way to survive. Speaking about sustaining creativity as someone who's, you know, now middle-aged and a lot of people stop creating around their thirties, forties, you know, they, they might have that urge and then maybe that lack of acceptance. Sometimes it can be both a source for creativity and it can also be a end point. You know, it can be, I'm done fighting this. I should get this. I should be able to do this. I'm comparing. If you're constantly comparing and there's a lot of comparison in the book. I mean, this narrator is kind of living through the words of all of these texts, right? Forming the self from the words of others, the ideas of others that have been published, disseminated, stayed with some sort of, you know, section of humanity over time through the printed word, through universities, through uh, enlightened thought. It it feels to me like there's that double-edged sword. Refusing to accept reality is a way to stay awake, right? To fight, to fight for good, social justice, etc. But accepting nothing drives people insane. It also stops creativity. When you say accepting nothing drives people insane, what do you mean? Have you become friends at some point in your life with someone who was so wanting to reject reality that you felt you were nervous for them? You were you were like, this person has gone too far. This person doesn't know how to survive with the questioning. Because they were so because the quest, because No, because the questioning of reality goes beyond a sort of sane, logical questioning of reality into conspiracy or into extreme behavior or whatever. Oh, um, I mean, I got, yeah, I don't know if I've had close friends like that, but for sure, yeah. That's what I'm describing. Questioning reality is good. Questioning everything, not so good. The unknown is tantalizing. People navigate that in different ways you know you can really dive deeper and deeper into conspiracy theories you can go the opposite way and never read the news and kind of uh feel idyllic in that sense but um that can be its own danger i mean there's there's no real middle ground in terms of objective reality um and everyone does especially now with the internet, with our phones, we all negotiate different kind of ways of the world, ways of being. I agree with that. I also think the universal ways of being don't care for our modern habits. Like the universal ways of being, the the tree is the tree, regardless of if you notice the tree. Um, 
sure you know you know like i noticed the other day driving in traffic about to cross from san francisco back into the east bay there was someone at a four-way stop uh who cut diagonally across a main you know a main intersection in san francisco didn't look up one time he knew that he could walk in that diagonal he wasn't in a crosswalk he was walking diagonally so the long way from a four-way stop and it struck me as hilariously appropriate for this moment in this city but if i witnessed that every day i wouldn't have observed it anymore it would have become the routine i don't do that i don't take that route home via the bay bridge every day i do it once a week only for the last few months or only for the last month and i usually avoid the bay bridge and go the other direction point being here's a moment in time his reality this this man's reality maybe 30 years old it was science fiction to me sure so oblivious to a threat while walking on a main street diagonally across but i've noticed that is more commonplace in general this sense of i'm i'm not going to get hit or 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 a father with his two and a half year old on a little scooter thing behind him as he's crossing the street she's four to five feet behind him and there's a blind curve and i'm i'm a parent of a five-year-old i'm like no 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 she's stuck on the curb she can't get up over the curb he's half aware she's two and a half that reality for him is totally different than that reality for me you know i'm sensing danger he's totally content sure all you can do is accept that i mean the more angry you get about it i don't have anger i don't have anger yeah around it yeah but i have awareness you're just you're just saying that you notice it well you're talking about reality is there is no middle ground you said Mm -hmm. right we're all in our own reality essentially sure but you have a relationship you're sharing a reality for parts of your day right sure that's not just yours yeah i'm yeah okay so i don't i don't understand i guess what you're getting at there i think there is a middle ground i think there's overlaps that's what makes reality a word it's a shared set of you know (laughs) things we can agree upon that we will die you know Right, but what my middle ground is isn't necessarily your middle ground. We might not meet in the middle until we get hit by the car. I mean, for sure. I guess I, that's just for sure. Well, that yeah, yeah. Well, that goes back to when you can't talk. Reality comes rushing in on you very strongly, right? Yeah. If you can't explain what you need or where you're coming from, you'll never be understood. Sure. Yeah. Right. But it's, sometimes it's hard to get the gumption to speak. Which is why I I was trying to empower my students so much last night, because I know that that paralysis in some ways is going to define their growth as, as people here in a new place, in a new language, with a new language, you know, that sense of, I can ask a question to the stranger, or I can get what I need by telling this person to please slow down, 
rather than just ignoring the, the, the thing and then trying to talk yeah. to my friend. And it's, it's, I mean, it's hard to get that confidence, you know? For sure. It, it brings me back to being a teenager um, when I didn't have it or parts of my early 20s. Yeah. It's part of why I do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me, myself, and I. When I think of a book, I, I sort of think of it as I need something. What do I, what am I, I'm writing to explore these ideas, feelings, experiences. Can you speak about how the process of writing this book helped you or gave you what you needed at the time? How it helped me. I don't know if it helped me per se. I, you know, I wanted to write a different type of thing that I'd done before about a subject matter that I hadn't really seen focused in on um so in that sense I think it was a success yeah I mean it's a very even if it has a fictional core it's a very um open honest book in a lot of ways I mean to go back to to vulnerability which um scared and still scares me but I also think you know writers should be they should push themselves and you should be writing, you know, like I'm not super interested in, in commercial fiction, not because I don't, I just don't read a lot. It's just different than what I'm interested in. So for me to write something that was fictional, but used a lot of other kind of antidotes and cultural frameworks and also had some type of kernel of kind of discomfort was, was good for me to do. Yeah. I appreciate that pushing yourself beyond your, your comfort zone into, I mean, I think writing is the unknown. I mean, quote, I, I write to discover what I already know, mm -hmm. but I also think I, you know, you, you write to go beyond what you're certain of and into uncertainty, which is a lot of what the book is about uncertainty and, and, sure. and the complexity of, of a self before we go what is the self uh well i mean <laughs> thousands simple, of different simple people. question just you I, just you jeff alessandro well i think i mean what, what, what is what is the self without the reference the, points just with when you boil it what's down. in the book and what you know is true to my own i think that we're constantly changing and there is no self there's only selves and i think as I get older, if I feel a modicum of comfortability with each of those selves, then it's a win, you know, because when I was younger from, you know, different environment to different environments, I would feel very um, insecure, unhappy. And I guess as I've gotten older, no matter the kind of arena, quote unquote, that I'm in, I feel you know, fairly comfortable with my many different selves. So I don't think there is a self, there's selves. And my goal as a human is to feel at ease, or at least, you know, fairly kind of good to use a somewhat nondescriptive word. So, and that's something that the protagonist struggles with, and in the end, comes to some understanding. Mm.
I, I appreciate the complexity of identity and, and concept of self. It is constantly shifting and at the same time without a fixed coherent narrative there's no ground you know there's no grounding yeah. and it's one yeah. of these it's one of these things where being in the moment and this is talked about at one point in the book being present being in the moment it kind of lets all of that fall away that that question of which self am i am i happy in this moment like the judgment the inner critic the analysis is gone when you're fully present and that's freeing right yeah and maybe it's that's scary but freeing it's scary and freeing spalding gray's monologues and mike daisy's monologues they they're kind of enrapturing they're kind of they're stream of consciousness but they're these clouds of feeling and emotion and thought that just kind of overcome and um i i never saw spalding gray in person but mike daisy is a monologuist i've seen in person a few times and i always leave the experience just feeling like there's something incredibly pure about this way of storytelling no script but an outline an outline mm -hmm. something to go back to and not just a rambling maniac <laughs> Right. But creativity within these bullet points so that you can connect. For sure. And 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 that connection is it's hard to find and it's hard to sustain. It's like a bottled up energy that is unleashed. I think good sure. acting and good music, good comedy, then it's taking that stuff of life and unleashing it. Yeah. Share, sharing it and good writing and and there's a lot of good writing in this book and um i appreciate that you wrote it i mean i, I think you're sharing vulnerability and questions about the self and intimacy that are they're hard to talk about because if you're not vulnerable you don't write sure definitely <laughs> but if you're vulnerable it's it's um it's that balance between action and contemplation mm -hmm. yeah and it honestly it was a hard book for me to get through but i'm glad i did um, it's hard because of all the why was it hard well i'm not a diligent reader i'm not a consistent structured reader um my creative urges, my teaching obligations, my parenting obligations, my exhaustion. Sure. I didn't have a ton of time and, and the lack of action <laughs> yeah. made it interesting to take these quotes that I, I bookmark, you know, okay, I want to look at this quote again. I love a lot of the quotes you've included, but because the narrative was less straightforward mm -hmm. and there was less dialogue, Hmm. it's a different type of read that's something you gravitate towards like narrative narrative and strong dialogue i don't think i'm unique i i, <laughs> I think oh okay well i I'm mean not, i'm not disparaging no, I, I, I know you're not i know you, I, I know you're not trying to attack there but like internal monologue is is powerful and i just wrote a short story where i use more internal monologue than i expected to as the story progressed 
the mm -hmm. first scene was all dialogue. It was a, it was it could have been a script. It could have been yeah. a, you can visualize it very clearly. It's a, it's basically a script of a group of people, and mm -hmm. um and it was fun to write and it was breezy and it was character development and it was action and then it and then the story changed as I expected it to but not so much into internal monologue and reflection and past experience flashback mm -hmm. um and it ends back in the meeting uh where there's some action and there's a and there's a kind of monologue actually at the end which i don't usually write a monologue so that was interesting to write yeah maybe it's just attention span and mine isn't very good <laughs> or maybe it's amount of time or maybe it's the diligence of the reader but um sure, yeah but I think when you're including so much abstraction and conceptual thinking and internal monologue, um, it's a different experience. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm also we, just not a great reader at this point. <laughs> well, no, I just, I'm actively doing or was interested in doing certain things in this book and actively not interested in doing other things. Yeah, definitely. I would love to read your dialogue i i am imagining it would be very interesting and i'm thinking of a show called the rehearsal which i just watched i don't know if you've heard of it uh-huh yeah nathan fielder um it's an hbo show yeah i know yeah there's a similar parallel here with stuck in your head versus action in the real world improvisation being yeah <laughs> a lot of this book i mean so i I'm, i just finished the fourth episode of the rehearsal and it's all about being in one's head and the difference between uh interiority and actuality and i i'm not done with the show but i i mean a lot is being written about it and i like it a lot yeah i i like parts of it i'll wait to maybe we'll discuss it later but it's interesting it's certainly interesting yeah. and, it, and it relates to some of the things we're talking about about modern life about needing to know before you act about sure. about revision and curation and control it's definitely a unique show i recommend everyone yeah. give it a it's shot everyone's cup of tea yeah i mean no he's an I, odd, yeah. he's an odd <laughs> and it actually and well it actually reminds me of stephen colbert's persona as the colbert show uh -huh. At this point, I don't think Stephen Colbert can really turn it off. I think he's just become this other person, talking about identity. Right. But it started as a persona that he was very deliberate sure. about. He's an improv right. improv background, just like Nathan Fielder has an improv background. And so if you improvise one thing long enough, you just become the thing. I mean, that's right. just what it is. Um, and that's interesting and scary. It's yeah. I would say scary. Uh, it's interesting to witness. It's uh, It's a very modern... Thing. I mean, so many of us act in order to live. We, we, we are acting online and we are recording, documenting, writing. Nobody's immune now. But sure. the sense of I am nature, back to Jackson Pollock. If you're nature, you don't rehearse. Huh. If you're nature, you live and you accept and you move forward and you fuck the consequences. You just do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're not in your head. Nature is not in its right. head. Dogs, back to dogs, are not overthinking it. That's why we love them because they're right. so upfront and clear. Because they're so present. Yeah. And they're so present. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been great being present with you, Jeff. Thanks for, for joining me. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Jenna. All right. Take care of yourself. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. It's just me, myself, and I. That was a great talk with Jeff. I appreciate Jeff's considerations of all these difficult and complex ideas about the self and desire and attachment and vulnerability. An interesting talk, full of abstract ideas that we try to get deeper with and maybe simplify. Complex ideas that are also simple. I am nature. I refuse to get stuck in my head, Jackson Pollock says. Or, I am wild, that's all I am. Let's end with Spalding Gray from that 1997 interview with Charlie Rose. Thanks for listening. What you do is unique. No one does what you do, as far as I can... Do you know anybody who's made a career out of the kind of... Monologue the ongoing uh, soap opera. No, right, they exactly. haven't that. There are people starting starting to do to it. To do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. What is it that makes it attractive? What is it you bring you know, to that monologue? A, 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 a relatively honest voice, which we don't hear a lot of. I mean, Princess Di was um, famous for that. I mean, that's what people loved about her. Do you think that was it? That, that was one of the big ones. It was a relatively honest voice. There was a frankness there. And... and, and in a man, in a man, it, it, who, who else are we hearing? Everyone has an agenda. They're selling, they're a politician, or they're selling a product, or a religion. Mm-hmm. And I, yes, I'm selling myself, but I'm also, I'm also in a, a state of questioning and doubt. And, and I, I think it's a, contem- it's a contemporary voice. I think it's that also, but I just think when you have, and I don't know what it is, because I mean, I've never seen, an, I've seen, I think, everything you've ever done. Uh-huh. I mean, I just think, I think this is a rare talent. It is the ability to make what other people could do, and it wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Somehow, you mm-hmm. somewhere picked up this capacity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to tell an, a story right. and to make it compelling. Mm-hmm. But from doing it. It's from doing it. I do workshops occasionally in, in this, yeah. in, at Esalen Institute, and, and it, it really, what I'm only saying to the people there is that if you keep, if you get in a place where you can do it, and workshop it, and do it, and retell it, 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 it really, you begin to learn how to do it. So I've done it through time, and also, I'm in a very privileged place. I, I, I don't have to pay any, I don't have to pay attention to anything I don't want to, I'm free to pay attention to things. It's a very, it's a very meditative state. The audience, if I come back with a good story, is supporting me to pay attention to life. Not just my life, but life. And that's a beautiful, that's a, that's a poetic space. Do you feel vulnerable at all? Or is it now, at some point, you've reached a page where, I, you know, where I, I, do, I certainly do feel vulnerable in the sense that... You still that, do. Well, I'm very aware that I could die at any moment. And that's a great sense well, of vulnerability. Well, I don't mean that, but I mean, do you, do you, do you feel so sense that, that, that somehow, by this exposure and the way I tell these stories, that I am somehow opening myself up to my story... I don't feel vulnerable that way anymore. No. Did I, you I, once? I, going through, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. When I went out on stage in, in, in New York City, and I was very nervous about. I was very nervous about what the press would do to me. What don't you put in here that you thought about?
I mean, where do you draw the line? Well, you know, in therapy, actually. I didn't think I could do another monologue. I pretty much uh, almost cracked up uh, just before this monologue was... serious? Yeah, one. Yeah, it was was told that I was manic-depressive, was on uh, clonopin and lithium and seeing a top psychopharmacologist Are here you in serious? New York City. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't know if that monologue gives a flavor of the, uh, of, the of, of the crack up. Uh, and I, uh, um, skiing really gave me a sense of balance in the middle of that crack, crack up. But um, what was the question? <laughs> well, what, what didn't you tell us that we might Oh, know? oh my in God, words, that was in the therapist lab. That's what helped me through. <laughs> I, I had a very good uh, uh, woman therapist that uh, that uh, I laid out this stuff. I laid out my shadow in her yeah. her lap, as it were, and we we began to figure out what was public and what was private. And how so did you? And, and okay, I mean, I'm trying to. I can't tell the private stuff. I no, actually no, have the private stuff to do. But I mean, yeah. at least tell me wh how you decide what's. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I worked with a dramaturg on this, Paul Spencer, who helped after I developed it. You know, I said, look, you know, you, no, 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 you, no, no you, be, you be a witness to this. You know, yeah. be a witness. What do you think should stay in and what should go? Yeah. And, and that all has to do with art, art you know, creation of. Does this have a good resonance? You know, is, is it repeated somewhere else? Okay, here? so the, the test was not whether it was embarrassing and no, it might it hurt somebody. Structure. The test structure. was, does right. it play? Yeah. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was strictly a career it was, decision. It was, not, it was not all is fair in love and war and art. So you let it all hang out as long as the dramatist oh. says... This advances our case. This advances oh, no, no, I didn't let it all hang out because it, it hung out in the therapist's office before that. You know, people say, how can you put your life on all your life? Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm 56 years old. I know. The, our monologue is an hour and a half. Think <laughs> of what is left out. Think of the enormity of that. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, but see, a lot there's something about you that makes you reveal more than most. For sure. And sure. you somehow picked up sure. on the idea that you could sure. make that revelation attractive. The audience taught me that. I mean, they were my first teachers. They were my first editors. They sat and listened, and they responded, and they enjoyed, and they told me. You know, when I was first working with the Worcester Group, I was in, in a collective for a long time, yeah. and I knew I wanted to go solo. And I had an image that what I was going to do was run down 42nd Street in a red jock strap. And I knew that I wasn't going to do that as an art piece, but I knew that it had to do with exposure. And the point is that I, I wanted to expose more than just my... Uh, just my uh, body, and this uh, psyche and heart, and the whole, the whole, the whole uh, salad. Just my uh, body, and this uh, psyche and heart, and the whole, the whole, the whole uh, salad. Just my uh, body, and this uh, psyche and heart, and the whole, the whole, the whole uh, salad. Just my uh, body, and this uh, psyche and heart, and the whole, the whole, the whole uh, salad.